and welcome back to the Geek Rex Movie Club podcast. In our final October surprise of 2016, <laughs> our Halloween Movie Club episode comes out in early December. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we're all uh, cool, busy adults who uh, go to film festivals and uh, travel the country or the world. Or, uh, in, in, in my case, uh, uh, you know, I'm a cool, busy adult who is uh, riddled with anxiety about uh, our nation's future and am periodically unable to get out of bed. So, you know, we had a lot going on. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> so who is this cool, busy, hard-traveling we I mentioned? That is Kyle. Hi there. Hannah. Hello. And Harper. Hey there. And our movie, uh, which will be joining the ranks of uh, Costa Gavras's Z, Abbas Kiarostami's uh, Close Up, and Bong Joon Ho's Memory of Murder, is uh, I think I think it's fair to say equally critically beloved uh, Diablo Cody Karen Kasama uh, 2009 horror film Jennifer's Body. You guys, you, you, like you don't you, listeners, you don't know us, and don't try and predict what we're going to do next. Okay. Jennifer's body tells the story of two childhood friends, the cocky, gorgeous Jennifer, uh, Megan Fox, and the shyer, less adventurous Anita, uh, played by Amanda Seyfried, who Jennifer refers to as Needy. Jennifer convinces Needy to accompany her to a, uh, to a town bar in their small kind of uh, rural town to see a hip indie band from the city called Low Shoulder, thinking it could be fun to hook up with the musicians. Unbeknownst to her, the band plans to sacrifice her to Satan in exchange for rock stardom. Unbeknownst to the band, Jennifer is not a virgin, like she claims, and so when they try, the demon takes possession of her body. Now supernaturally gorgeous, Jennifer has to kill and feed regularly to maintain her health, beauty, and demonic powers. And only her old friend Needy can see that something is terribly wrong. Now, I've seen this movie a number of times over the years, but I don't actually know what relationship you all have with it. So was this your first time, and what did you all think? My first time, uh, I really was a virgin um, before <laughs> seeing this film. So you could you could have safely sacrificed me to, uh, you know, Beelzebub. Um, but, uh, you know, the funny thing about Diablo Cody, uh, I'm going to say something really, like, controversial probably. She kind of reminds me in the way she approaches genre uh, in the same sort of way that like someone like Max Landis might approach genre. Now, obviously she doesn't share his awful outsized personality and general, like everybody hates him kind of way, but they both sort of tackle genre in a way that I think sort of flips it on its head a little bit. In her case uh, with Juno, she, she kind of took on the coming of age motion picture in a really smart, really intriguing way that ended up earning her an Oscar. And Young Adult, uh, another film about like going home again and, and sort of rediscovering your roots, uh, I think she took that on in a way that was at least a little bit fresh in, in sort of the way that I find like Landis de, de, did with like the action genre with like American Ultra, a movie I actually like. And uh, of course, the superhero genre with Chronicle. Um, there, there's just like some 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 sort of execution uh, similarities between the two and sort of like a, an ability to experiment with the with with genre a bit that I admire. So, uh, yeah, I was excited to watch this. I don't know why I hadn't watched it before. And uh, this was my first time. Uh, it's a good time. 
Yeah, this was also the first time I'd ever seen it. I think I vaguely remember when it came out in theaters and the way that it was marketed. I just kind of dismissed it as a bad looking horror movie. <laughs> so it did take me by surprise. I'm sure we'll get into it more, but I, uh, I definitely enjoyed it. This was the either second or third time I had seen it. Um, I uh, like you, Hannah. I had totally dismissed it. We, we could probably talk a little bit about how like insanely inappropriate the marketing for this movie was. Uh, but yeah, this was one that you know was sitting on the shelves at Blockbuster along with a lot of other terrible horror movies and, and definitely got ignored. But um, I got to thank my uh, my sister who, if she's listening, uh, thank you, Kendall, for pulling this movie out for one of our Halloween parties a few years ago, and I totally fell in love with it. Um, it's, yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite uh, horror movies of the last um, last couple of years. And yeah, it's funny and very smart and very unique. So uh, it's it's nothing like what uh, what you'd expect looking at the uh, the box art and the um, the description of the movie on the back. <laughs> Harper, I didn't realize your sister was so into horror movies. Yeah, she's actually she's been into them for much longer than I was. I, I was totally terrified of horror movies when I was a kid, and she and my dad um, kind of forced me to take my hands off my eyes to uh, to watch as a kid. <laughs> Aww, take you off this podcast and bring her on. <laughs> you know what she she said? We should have invited her. I feel bad now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring up the marketing. I actually had the same experience you all did, where I dismissed it when it was out in theaters. And part of that, there was a big backlash going on at the time against Diablo Cody and against the star Megan Fox. But also just the the trailers looked pretty bad and the marketing looked pretty bad. And that actually plays into, uh, for me, I think one of the weakest scenes in the movie, which is when uh, Amanda Seyfried and Jennifer, or Megan Fox uh, make out for no reason. Mm-hmm. And I think actually I literally read an interview where they were talking about how they were kind of rolling their eyes, but that was like the scene that would get the trailers out and that would get the movie made. Like that was a requirement of the studio. Uh, so I do think this was done poorly by the marketing team. Oh, yeah. You know, I did like in that scene though, that at the, you know, as they're, they're making out and then um, she stops and she's like, what are we, what are we doing? Like, it's almost like a meta commentary watching it the second time. I was like, yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, and I I think there's a way that you can read. I mean, so much of this film is explicitly about Jennifer and Needy and kind of their relationship to sexuality and to all that. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's not an awful scene in that I think you can read it as uh, Jennifer trying to use her sexuality to deflect this fight that's coming with Needy, uh, the same way that she deflected a lot of the. The, the scene with the football player in the woods when the animals start surrounding them and just staring <laughs> at them. And like a normal person, right, sees that and is like, what's going on? And Megan Fox just takes off her shirt and it's like, okay, we're all good now. And she tries that same thing with Needy. And so, I mean, you know, the, there's a rationale I can see, but it definitely fits into the, um, the way that I think studios, uh, studio horror is very shallow in what it tends to use to market and sell itself. Mm -hmm. And this movie doesn't fit in very well with that. Um, Yeah, I mean, that scene was almost out of nowhere. The only thing that kind of tied it to anything at all was the scene in the bar before the fire where she takes uh, her hand 
and they're kind of looking at each other weirdly for well it's, it's actually just Amanda Seyfried staring at her but yeah I thought it played to the lesbian su- subtext but yeah. I, I don't know maybe maybe that's just where my brain was going with it is that what you're about to say I'm sorry well that's what I'm saying is yeah, yeah they, they kind of made that that one scene early on like she was kind of looking at her that way but then it got dropped for a while yeah I mean it's just it's it's hard man when you watch a movie about same-sex friendships and you you, and you see little bits of that and your brain instantly goes to like oh you know maybe they're discovering their like blossoming sexuality towards one another but it's also you you want to be able to think that oh people can also just be friends and not be attracted to one another so you're you're trying to like you're you're looking for subtext that may not actually be there and i that was something i was battling back and forth with while i was watching i was like are they trying to say something about uh, say, uh, you know, feed, uh, girl, 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 girl relationships or not. And I'm just not sure about clo- if they're trying to talk about closeted homosexuality or not with needy, especially, um, or is like the demon is sort of like some sort of inner representation of that. Um, but then I just thought, God, maybe I'm just overthinking it. Well, and, but I mean, Jennifer actually does uh, a couple times throughout the movie refer to, needy as kind of uh as as a lesbian uh you know i mean when needy attacks her at the end with a uh, box cutter uh which uh, i thought was one of the funniest little moments the the thing that jennifer ends up saying to try and hurt her is uh you know do you buy all of your murder weapons at home depot so butch mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah it's <laughs> a good line so it, it's interesting that you brought up Max Landis because, uh, you know, I mean, he actually does fit pretty well into this school that I was thinking of, but he wasn't the person that came to mind most. Uh, and I think that, you know, I, I think the person that Diablo Cody gets uh, compared to often in certain circles is probably Joss Whedon. Sure. And uh, the movie that this reminded me of most this time was probably uh, the Joss Whedon, Drew Goddard movie, uh, Cabin in the Woods, mm-hmm. um, which I love. I love Cabin in the Woods. But the reason that I say that is because both movies, I think, uh, mistakenly got called horror comedies, but they're actually, I think, horror satires uh, critiquing the tropes and formulas that define mainstream horror and trying to kind of undermine and then reinvent them. But where Cabin is really focused, uh, at least in the first half, on the kind of teens in the woods monster movie, uh, and it only sort of uh, obliquely references other mainstream genres, Jennifer's body um, draws a lot from three main genres and seeks to kind of do, I think, a feminist reinterpretation of all three, and those to me are the slasher genre where one evil person or creature goes around and brutally murders a bunch of sexually active teens. Uh, the possession genre where one person, typically a woman, is possessed by an evil force, which an older, more knowledgeable person, typically a man, must exercise. And the rape revenge movie in which an educated city girl gets brutally assaulted by less refined countrymen and is either left uh, either on her own or with her family to take out her revenge on on them all. And I see Jennifer's body as a conscious criticism of those three genres, but I'm curious as to what you all thought about the idea of it as satire or criticism or kind of neither. And uh, if any of those uh, modes of horror or any of those tropes worked better or less well for you. 
Well, it's not really a comedy, really. I mean, as you say, I was trying to think about why they would ever sell it as such. I, I mean, it, it's kind of like going back to it's more Scream than it is Tucker and Dale versus Evil, where there's there there are some laughs, but the horror still kind of stays front and center, and the blood and the gore. Whereas, like you know, Zombievers or something is all about like ridiculous B movie. Okay, this, I'm just laughing at this, and there's there's not actually much in the way of real intelligence towards the genre being uh, refined or portrayed. So I, I think that's funny that uh, I guess the line is just so thin for some folks in the marketing department they go straight for the comedy route and i guess that's an easier sell than the satire but you know the movie seems also a bit ahead of its time because i mean after scream we didn't get many films that sort of turned the genre on its head and this this came before tucker and dale this came before cabin in the woods this came before gosh it may have it may have come like maybe right after Shaun of the Dead, if my memory is good. There, I think so. Yeah. That so that there, there there wasn't there weren't as many of those types of efforts out there, and there probably still aren't really. I think it may have even timed itself right around the same time as that behind beyond the behind the mask that Leslie Vernon movie. So, yeah, I mean it's definitely a satire, but I think it's one that keeps its horror roots pretty well intact. Yeah, it doesn't go so far in satire that it feels like a spoof. You know, like it feels like it it could just stand alone as it is. But I thought the biggest criticism slash commentary bit was just the use of virginity in the movie relative to how virginity is used in most typical horror films as like the thing that keeps you alive, essentially. And in this, throughout the film, it was kind of the opposite. Like Jennifer became this, you know, creature and survived and started killing people because she wasn't a virgin. And then uh, Needy loses her virginity like halfway through. And after she does that, she suddenly becomes like super badass and attuned to what's going on and trying to stop her. So I thought that was probably the most kind of obvious part of the criticism. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a really interesting movie if you're looking at it from that perspective because I think it's a lot more um, it's a lot more subtle as a as kind of a, a parody or a you know trying to kind of make fun of those uh, those tropes because it it's not like um, like Scream or Cabin in the Woods where it's very explicitly like hey horror movie fans like look at this um, you know and there's not like people watching horror movies constantly and talking about horror movies that kind of stuff it's a little more subtle in that it just kind of is a horror movie that happens to subvert a lot of the tropes and, um, and plays with some of those things, but not in such an obvious way, which is nice. Even though I, I, I do like that. Those, uh, a lot of those movies I'd also throw in two on top of those three genres that you named Cal. Um, I think it plays a little bit on the satanic panic kind of stuff too, with yeah. the band doing their, uh, doing their ritual. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing just kind of flips, flips a lot of those, uh, those genre tropes on their head with, um, with needy being they've kind of swapped the two characters where normally you know Jennifer would be the main character and would be um kind of the person that we're following and the hero of the story as you know she try and get rid of the possession or 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 get revenge or whatever you want to call it but instead we're following needy who really her main problem is not that her best friend is a monster but that she's very kind of um you know she's not very confident and she's kind of jealous and doesn't really she doesn't feel like she lives up to her friends. She feels like she's always in that shadow. 
so uh, you know they put that very like kind of human motivation and and character characteristic that's much more important than the actual you know monster stuff that's going on in the movie so while, while i do think it's definitely firmly a horror movie and there's there's a lot of horror stuff in there it's um it's almost more of a teen drama to me with a lot of horror elements uh, in some way so it really i guess you know based on what the four, four of us have said it really kind of bends a lot of uh a lot of genres and kind of mixes a lot of things together it's a pretty unique movie you know, Cal, it's funny you mentioned the the uh, rape revenge bit too, because I didn't I didn't think about that at all. I, I mean, I definitely caught the slasher parts and I caught the the demonic possession stuff, but the I, I had forgotten about the I spit on your grave type type spin, and I think it's <laughs> the way it twi- it sort of inverts the attackers and the attack and the attacked. Uh, I mean, the band are—they're they're actually the guys from the city per se. I know they said they're local boys or whatever, but whenever she's talking about this band, they're like, "Oh, it's this indie band from the city," which she also plays like the shittiest music imaginable. <laughs> by the way, that's a non sequitur. But I thought that was—I thought that was pretty pretty smart actually. And the movie's not not a straight comedy, like like you said too, but it is super funny. Like it's one of the funniest horror movies that I, I can name, um, especially from from the last ten years. Um, it's like chock full of super quotable lines that I use all the time. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, I think a, a big part of the, 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 the most uh, successful comedic bits for me were almost all Adam Brody as the band's front man. Oh, it's so mm-hmm. good. The, I, I do like the, the callback to the satanic panic kind of a uh, style of uh, horror movies, but man, they may, they make Satanism look so fun. <laughs> <laughs> I like how he just like printed out the ritual from the internet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just like, here we go. <laughs> this yeah. is a good touch. What? And I mean, even beyond that, just like a bunch of music dorks who, uh, when he starts in on the um, Jenny, I've got your number bit, like it clearly wasn't something they'd rehearsed. Like it was just a joke he was throwing out, but they're a bunch of guys in a band. Like, of course they know, you know, eight, six, seven, five, three, oh nine. And so it was spontaneous and fun and a little weird. But also, he gave a really surprisingly casually menacing performance, I thought, just after the fire when he's trying to lure Jennifer into the van. I've never particularly cared for Adam Brody, but uh, I actually really liked him as kind of not the main antagonist here, but as, as a kind of a crucial figure of kind of casual evil in the world. Yeah, I mean, this movie, it's, it's funny, and this this is... That this doesn't speak to the text of the movie, but there's like two guys in this film that like I felt like could have played Spider-Man at some point. Adam Brody <laughs> is one of them, and Kyle Gallner is the other. Uh, these very like kind was of that needy's boyfriend. No, 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 no. That was that. That's young Neil from uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. So who's the other one? Uh, the guy that looked like Billy Joe Armstrong. Uh, by, you know, oh, <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. American idiot mode. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that guy that was on Veronica Mars. I always thought either one of those dudes could have been Spider Man at some point. And Adam Brody was the Flash for like two seconds. That that's not neither here nor there. But I, I remember him from the OC, and I hated him on the OC. So. Uh, yeah, to have, to have him actually be uh, an MVP of a film is uh, a, sh- a shocking development. <laughs> well, I remember one of the biggest criticisms of the film was actually in the performances. Specifically, a lot of people really disliked Megan Fox. And part of that, I think, was that she was just coming off of like peak Megan Fox 
this movie came out shortly after, I believe, Transformers 2, when she had uh, insulted Michael Bay in an interview and got booted from the series. And so people were uh, kind of ready to hate on her a little bit. But she really has never broken out as a performer beyond kind of the sex bomb stereotype. I was really impressed by her in this role, but I'd be curious to know what you guys thought about her and about the performances beyond it. But um, really specifically, uh, did did Megan Fox work for you as Jennifer? She does for me. Um, I think she sells a lot of the the comedic timing for all the jokes, first of all. Um, She's very, very funny in this. But I think, too, she's got this kind of weird, like, kind of deadpan-ness to her in in this that works really well for her character that's like, that's one of the kind of weird things about the movie is she starts like that first scene when she's like doing the cheerleading routine and, and they're waving to each other. That scene like kind of stands out as very different for her character. Like she seems like she's actually being a genuine friend and like, you know, doesn't care that anybody else sees her not, that kind of thing, I guess. But, um, you know, she's kind of halfway between that, like kind of innocent and then also very, very not. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. Just the way she kind of plays it deadpan works really well for this, the script for me. I think she's actually pretty good in this. Yeah, I mean, I would say out of the two female leads, I guess they were kind of co-leads. I think she was probably the stronger performer of the two. I thought she was really good. Yeah, I, I hadn't seen Megan Fox in anything in a while. Uh, and I, I imagine films that she's in these days I wouldn't watch. But, you yeah, know, it's nice to be reminded that she's got, you know, some sort of, you know, she's not that charismatic. But she's got some some sort of magnetic appeal that works well for this kind of role. It's almost as if like they wrote the role for her specifically uh, to the point where it's kind of perfect. Though I thought Amanda Seyfried was actually pretty good. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. She was fine. Maybe it's not her fault, but it's just like, and I guess you can credit the film as doing this on purpose. But, you know, having seen Mean Girls and then seeing her in this role and like you put glasses on her and she's the loser. <laughs> and it was just, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean she's she's incredibly attractive. The the glasses thing really does not uh make her hair a little fluffy. <laughs> the Clark Kent turn here. I'm sure that's like on purpose or whatever. Maybe it's just that they can't cast genuinely normal looking people in there, but it was kind of hard for me to believe the insecurity stuff sometimes. It wasn't totally sold on it. Well, I actually one of the things that I thought was interesting, at least the way I read the film, which sounds like it's a little different from the way you all read the film, is that I actually read Amanda Seyfried as very, uh, very competent in herself. Like she's not adventurous and she does live vicariously through Jennifer. Uh, She needs this friendship to kind of help her, help challenge her and help her reach out and do things she might not do otherwise. But the one who I thought was really needy was always Jennifer. I thought that was a lot of, a lot of this was Jennifer projecting and Jennifer's lack of self-confidence in a way that was brought to head kind of in their final confrontation in the pool when Jennifer's defense against being Jennifer's claim that she's still cool is that she like won a beauty pageant, like a local beauty pageant two years ago. And that's like the, that's the best she can come up with. And um, meanwhile, you know, Amanda Seyfried, she isn't as put together, but part of that, they, they actually, I thought did a good job showing that like, a lot of that is artificial with Megan Fox. You know, I mean, she is slathering on makeup. She's taking laxatives to skate, stay skinny. So, I mean, there there is a sense, for me at least, that, you know, I mean, 
Megan Fox's character is, even though she's the more seemingly confident one, is actually more cocky than confident. And for the most part, actually has like a deep insecurity about about Needy kind of moving beyond her and not needing her anymore. Yeah, and that's kind of that switch up that I was kind of mentioning that they they both, you know, by the end, you sort well, you and Needy, I guess, both um, as the viewer kind of realize that she's obviously the one who's much more put together and is doing great. Like she's got a, she's got a boyfriend that she really likes and, and things are going well for her. But for Jennifer, even though it looks very, you know, like she's doing great from the outside, she's obviously not. Um, and she's got a lot of kind of struggles going on and that's why she treats needy the way she does. Um, so that kind of role reversal is, is pretty interesting. Yeah. And I, I think part of that comes through throughout the course of the film too, right? Like she definitely, Needy definitely starts as kind of almost like a lackey figure, like doing whatever Jennifer wants to do, even if she clearly does not want to do it, and then kind of asserting herself before the end. So So this is uh, something that you kind of touched on a little bit earlier, I think, Kyle, um, but it's it's something that I think that uh, I wanted to talk about a little bit more, and that's a common criticism that gets leveled both against this and Cabin in the Woods by a lot of horror fans is that neither film is like actually scary uh, at all. And uh, for me, I, I think one of the weaker points of the film is that it does tend to shy away from its most overt horror elements. You know, it often cuts away from violence before it gets too intense or doesn't vary up kind of the way the violence happens, the way that like a lot of horror movies do. But a uh, I don't know, do, does a horror movie have to scare you to be a good horror movie? Or would you say that this is more of a teen drama, as Harper described it, with horror elements? Or is horror more about the style and the themes and the storytelling than it is about kind of how much it scares you? Uh, well, how much something scares you is subjective, right? It's kind of like, does this, is this comedy funny? I mean, I, I think there are people that are that would be sort of scared by... Uh, you, you know, the the way Megan Fox's Jennifer looks when she is at Needy's house with blood all over her and vomiting up black bile. And, all, and I know people that couldn't even look at that, probably. But I think what tends to define horror more is as a genre is more what it plays with, like the, the week, playing with certain themes, playing with certain tropes and playing with certain subject matter. Uh, it doesn't have to be like a boo every couple of minutes in order to have like be considered a scary film or to be considered a horror film. I think it's all about its style, which this movie kind of has in spades, right? Yeah. I mean, I can't think of many horror movies that are genuinely scary anyway, you know, like, and, and everybody has different standards for that. Like Kyle said, but when I think about movies that have really, really scared me, I can think of maybe, one every year max. And I mean, even then it's like a stretch. I mean, this year that the witches was pretty scary or witches, whatever. Oh, the witch. Witch. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and I know people thought that movie was boring. I thought it was pretty freaky. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's what I'm saying. It's subjectivity. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, but I definitely like other films that aren't maybe as scary on their surface. And I think it still falls into the horror genre. Yeah, I I think it definitely goes um, goes without saying that just because a horror movie is scary doesn't mean it's good and, and vice versa. You know, I, I can maybe name two or three that horror movies that I think are, are really, truly scary, at least to me, um, and that are also really good. But 
for an example, on the other uh, other side of it, um, I thought the the new Blair Witch movie this year was very scary, but it was okay. Like it's not a great movie, you know. So those definitely don't go hand in hand. But I, I do I do agree. I think horror movies don't necessarily have to be scary. I think it's more about the tools that they're using and the um, and the style that they play with. I think that's one of the things I like about the horror genre is that there's a lot more. Um, uh, a lot more leeway with using kind of exaggerated style than you get with almost any other genre. So you, you get to play with a lot more of kind of the fun stuff um, than you do in like dramas or even, even, you know, sci-fi in, in a lot of cases. Harper. I, I couldn't even look at that fucking Blair Witch movie, by the way. Man. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got I heard. so sick. <laughs> Holy shit, man. Hannah had to give me Dramamine in the middle of the movie. <laughs> I, that, that's never happened to me before. Well, that, that's a different uh, kind of scary. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, it was. I thought I was gonna have to leave in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that, was, that was something. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm sure you're not alone in that. I know. Um, I have some family members who definitely cannot stomach um, handheld camera like that either. So I, I totally get it. And especially, I think. Well, we probably shouldn't get off into too long. Blair Witch. No, I know. I know. I'm sorry. I was, I was pulling us off into <laughs> mention Z here. <laughs> But yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with both of you. And I think that it's interesting that horror seems like, a, at least when, I, when I'm interacting with its fandom and with sites that review or focus on horror, often feels very conservative in what it considers horror. And so anytime when I think you're lumping something like The Witch and Cabin in the Woods and Jennifer's Body and calling all of these like not horror it really leaves me to wonder like what what they would even be then and what what is horror and it's a very it's a very weird uh, subset but i know that i i do know that the film has been criticized cuz it's it's not very scary but i also for me there's there there's a part of me that thinks that the middle section of the film where jennifer is hunting and needy is kind of discovering it Part of the problem with it not being very scary is that that part of the film was actually a little boring to me. Um, I liked the beginning a lot. I loved the end. But the middle uh, kind of the infamous Hollywood second act problems really struck with this. And I think that if the film had taken its overt horror elements as seriously as, as, as it took its horror themes... Uh, because I do think the script from Diablo Cody is uh, phenomenally, phenomenally smart about the way that it plays with horror themes. But I think that the lack of actual scares does make the uh, middle of the movie a bit challenging for me. Yeah, I, I, I um, there was a point to which when we were watching it that I thought, well, when people are talking, I'm really engaged. Like, I'm really interested in what they have to say, even if what they're saying is maybe a bit unnatural because it's conveying Diablo Cody's very strong POV. But when people aren't talking, which is uh, there's a there's a segment of that movie, I think, right after uh, Billy Joe Armstrong dies, that uh, it, things really slow down and there's a lot more silence and a lot more uh, attempt to be a little more horror E and a little more action E that I think the the movie starts to lose me a little bit and it's only it's like 15 20 minutes up to probably up to the point of the dance up to maybe that point where they're at the pool and then once uh jim megan fox starts floating again then i'm like all right we're back we're back where i want to be and uh and then and then and there we have 
uh, Cody's strong wordplay is, is back into the game. But yeah, I know what you're talking about, Cal. It, it definitely struggles there. But to, to talk to you about like the, 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 the conservative attitude of horror fans, too, my, my understanding is a lot of times what they're interested in is shit like Insidious, which to me is just just fucking garbage. Like I, I you could you couldn't make me sit through one of those in the theater. So if that's like what's considered horror, fucking check me out, man. I, I have no interest in modern horror. Yeah, there's definitely like <clears throat> I mean, it seems like it changes every, you know, maybe five or ten years about what kind of the the main standard of horror is, and you're definitely right right now. It's this kind of like haunted house possession thing that's going around. And there are some standouts. I mean, like um, Cal, I know you really liked the, uh, the new Ouija movie that came out this year. I, I liked it a good bit as well, but uh, you know, most of those are not great, but they're kind of like, that's like the standard for what a horror movie is right now. So when something is very different, um, like the witch, that's obviously not even remotely similar except for, you know, that it's got some of the same kind of horror, um, tools and, and stylistic choices in use. Um, you know, I can, I can see why people can, uh, might discriminate against that kind of thing. You guys, this is a total aside, but can we talk about how J.K. Simmons shows up in this movie? Oh my god, I totally Completely forgot. Completely to my surprise, looking so different and also doesn't have a hand for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's hilarious in this. I completely forgot he was in it. It's a bad wig, man. That was like <laughs> a bad wig. <laughs> I mean, he's gotten so buff lately, it was almost hard to recognize him. And then I still don't understand why they gave him that he didn't have a hand. Like, that just seemed like such a random thing to do for such a small character. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. You know what I mean? But I, I actually was, as soon as he popped up with the, you know, with the hook for a hand, I was actually really nervous. Like, oh, God, are they going to make fun of this? Or is this going to be like a joke? And it really was. He just was a teacher who had one hand. Like he was just. <laughs> yeah, it, it really wasn't anything. But I kept expecting it to be something because of the kind of movie it was, and because it was J.K. Simmons. I guess I don't know. Yeah, it, it's weird. I don't even. It's a character that probably could have been put on the cutting room floor. Honestly, like I don't really know what he serves in the plot, other than he's the adult presence. Mm-hmm. He pretty much is the only Fish. adult presence yeah. in the film, other than Amy Sedaris. As if Amy Sedaris is equally irrelevant as yeah. an adult, and pretty much every adult in this is irrelevant. But yeah, I mean, I mean, you're right. I'm glad it wasn't some stupid cliche or tool or something. He just had a hook for a hand. But in that setting, I was just waiting for it, like you were. I think one of the things that actually kind of interested me about uh, him was that, like, J.K. Simmons, it was obviously a broad kind of hammy performance, but I thought it was interesting that uh, like where this movie is set in rural New York. Is that right? Does anyone know? Or did they, did they ever say? But he's the only one who's doing like a uh, he's the only one who's doing like an accent, like a regional accent for some reason in the whole movie. And it's a really great regional accent, too, for like a like New England, like rural New England, if I'm remembering correctly, but no one else is doing it. It's <laughs> really bizarre. Yeah, it adds to how weird that character's existence is. <laughs> it's so strange. It's almost like he had a bigger part that was cut down. I felt like when I watched him, just because he seemed like more established and in character than anyone else, given the amount of screen time he had. Uh. 
and he really just pops up every once in a while. Like yeah. here, here, there he is at the car listening to that football player scream. Right. And then there he is at the dance, uh, you know, the, the overseeing that. He's the only teacher they, they had. So they got to he's got to be everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, Jennifer's body does something that I thought was uh, interesting and maybe even a little weird. Um, it's not something most horror movies do outside of like 1974's Black Christmas and maybe like one or two others. And that's uh, give us a real sense of like the emotional aftermath of the deaths. The horror imagery, I, you know, I mean, we talked about is a little bit boring, but, you know, seeing the way that like Colin... Kyle Gallner, uh, Colin's family, uh, reacted to his death was like very weirdly specific or uh, Jennifer's absolute terror. I thought Megan Fox did a great job of just her absolute terror from being like led into the van in shock uh, to the look she gives Needy as she's taken away to something she clearly does not want to be doing right now to her horror at being executed, being uh, sacrificed. And these are things that I think horror normally uh, elides in part because, I mean, we all know the feeling of uh, losing someone that we love, you know, whether it's a grandparent, a parent, uh, you know, so we've like everyone has lost someone. And I wonder if, you know, that kind of takes the fun out of the killing. <laughs> you know, I mean, horror movies often staff their movies, I guess, with characters who are kind of awful and shitty and that way you can enjoy watching them get off in these bizarre ways while the character you actually care about like survives the film as the final girl but this actually makes like Kyle Gallner isn't like a douchey douchey punk rock kid like he's a sweet sensitive narrative nonfiction uh, student and uh, the football player isn't like a some horny meathead jock. He's in genuine pain over losing his friend. And was, was this effective for you? Or do you think that it kind of undercut the kind of satirical fun of the movie at all? Like what, what purpose did it serve and how did it work for you? Well, I thought the reason that the men were, I guess, more fleshed, not fleshed out, but not just awful one note victims or whatever is because it felt like they were turning the male-female killer-killed relationship on its head. So, you know, she was kind of hunting these, uh, you know, good boys, essentially, and taking taking their sexuality from them and killing them in a way that you would maybe expect, like, a male killer to, you know, search for female victims, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's true. And, and uh, most of them, if I'm remembering right, um, most of them are not, like, you know, coming after her specifically or like, like they're not like lusting after her in in the way that she's, you know, she's definitely the, the predator in the situation, which is, kind of, which plays to that too, is very opposite of what you're usually seeing in these kinds of movies. I don't know. I, I think it adds weight to, uh, to the proceedings, um, to add, to have like an after effect of everyone's death, to have, to see sort of like, you know, the, the, the school, uh, in shock over the the burning down of that pool hall and letting that be a, a really a, an integral part of the film. I mean, this idea that this 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 terrible, terrible, awful piece of shit song has become like the anthem 
for uh, that the memorializing that event, and it creates like this fandom around this band. You know, I, I thought that was really well um, insulated into the film in a way that uh, I, I admired. Uh, and and I, I don't know. I mean, it was it was it was interesting to see the you know the the football player that's kind of the first victim. In the, you know, outside the football field, I don't remember his name, but you you see his anger over the loss of his best friend, and then you see his his parents upset about him being killed. Uh, you see uh, Jennifer's mom upset once she gets murdered by Needy. Uh, there's there's I don't know. I like I like a little bit of emotional weight to killing. Killing should be uh, you know something that's taken seriously, right? And for a film that subverts genre tropes uh to be able to uh to add in that emotional investment i think just furthers its strengths especially in the way it's playing with uh, a genre that treats things so lightly does it take the fun out i don't know but it makes it a better movie for it yeah i would agree and i think too maybe that's the part of the movie that's that's scary you know that's the scariest thing about it um i'm trying to remember who said it but i i think there's some director that says you know only true horror actually shows the consequences of the violence that's happening. So yeah, it definitely succeeds on, on that front. Um, and, and does add, and I think it works too, as just part of the, you know, the, the parody of the genre too, is that's very opposite of what you'd normally see in these movies. You never see that the mourning process for anything, um, in most horror movies. So that, that kind of adds to it on, on both sides of the coin. It was a movie. It's about mourning, uh, which yeah. like, like the Babadook or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, uh, this director, Karen Kasama, uh, her first movie after Jennifer's Body, which took her six years to make, was another horror movie, even more, uh, another kind of horror-ish movie that took, uh, that is very explicitly about the grief and pain of losing someone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's this Mm -hmm. year's The Invitation, which I I loved, and I think, um, Harper, you liked quite a bit too. I don't think you liked quite as much, Kyle. No, I, I did. I didn't like it as much, but uh, you know, I hate everything with Michael Heisman in it. So <laughs> <laughs> that guy, that guy sucks, man. Did you uh, catch the panel? Wait, I'm sorry. trying to remember which one the invitation was. That's the one where they're having like the. the, the I'm thinking of the right movie, right? It's where they have like the house party, right? Yeah, the dinner party with the guy whose ex left after their child died, and this is the first. Oh, I liked that one. It stars not Tom Hardy. We watched that on like uh, at home, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I like that one. I didn't know that was recent. I thought we were watching it like after it came out for a while. No, that that was this year actually, and uh, that's that's this, that's Karen Kasama, the same director who did this. Did that not go to theaters? Did it just go straight to Amazon or wherever we saw it? It, it, it did the festival circuit, and then gotcha. and then uh, Amazon. Yeah, uh, I liked that one a lot. Actually, I thought it was pretty different. Yeah, I think it speaks to um, Kasama's strengths that she's able to make two horror movies that are vastly different. I mean, you know, we, we talked a lot about Jennifer's Body and how it kind of mixes a lot of genres and parodies of genres and, and blends a lot of things and is pretty unique. And The Invitation is another one that I don't think I can't name a single other movie that's even remotely like it. Uh, to me, The Invitation's like a it's a drama that is uh, like suddenly becomes a horror movie. Uh, it's a shame it has such a generic and bland, forgettable title for such an interesting <laughs> film. When you said it, I was just completely drawing. Oh blank. shit! Wait, what was that movie that was just like it though? Uh, the one about the parallel dimensions with the with the light sticks. What the fuck's that movie called? 
Damn it. Y'all know what I'm talking about. It's got Xander from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Coherence? Was That's that it? it. Yeah. That, I was, every time I, while I was watching The Invitation, I was reminded of Coherence. They had a similar, like, creepy sci-fi-ish almost feeling. Yeah. Even though they were sci-fi. Right. It's pretty good. You should check that out, Harper. <laughs> I will. I've never even heard of it. That is on uh, Amazon Instant, I believe. Yep, yep, yep. Oh. It's uh, it, it doesn't have as good an acting as The Invitation, uh, but I think it may have a stronger, may have a stronger premise that at least h- held my attention a little better. Yeah, the the Invitation does go out of its way to kind of hide some of its surprises in a way that is really effective. But you know, I can see how for me it was really effective, but I can see how it wouldn't work as well for other people. But uh, to to go back to something you had just mentioned, Kyle, you know, one thing that we kind of only touched on was the uh, uh, tragedy boner aspect of the movie, to use uh, Needy's term. And uh, this is this this section is pulled almost straight, like beat for beat from 1989's Heather's. But for me here, it actually, I, I you know, I mean, I know this is going to be uh, heresy to uh, some of our listeners, uh, but uh, it actually worked a little bit better here because I think that the tragedy boner thing not only was given real weight, but it also followed an arc from like genuine grief to kind of the publicizing of that grief to the commercialization of like remembrance. And I, I'm thinking there they they actually set that up early in the movie with the two tower 9-11 drinks that if you didn't drink them quick enough, just turned into like brown sludge. <laughs> so it's like it's such a meaningless gesture and it actually kind of ruins itself almost immediately but like it's it's one of those things that you do in remembrance and so here that was uh kind of the how they kept uh, the band low shoulder the satanic band uh in the movie was through their uh their song uh through the trees which uh it sounds like kyle really loved hearing about 800 times the movie. oh yeah oh yeah let me let me ask alexa to play it right now <laughs> <laughs> did did this kind of a uh, like kind of low low boiling subplot this tragedy boner satire uh work for you or were you put off by the similarities to heathers and um ha- have you gone and downloaded uh low shoulders album like what, what are your feelings oh well let's see alexa play wait what's the name of the song again through, through the, the truth <laughs> Alexa, play through the trees. No, no, Alexa, stop. (laughs) No, stop. Alexa, stop. Alexa, stop. (laughs) Sorry. I I apologize. I thought I would play a good song, but I guess I need to do the Spotify thing. No, I I have not downloaded that album, as you can tell. Uh, And I did not make any connection to Heather's, actually, which was, I guess, just because of the general just difference in – in uh, film type, it, I, it you just never, never kind of connected for me. But uh, I mean, yeah, it, it, I think it's one of the more affecting parts of the film is uh, how it approaches, uh, you know, the the, the loss of, of life and uh, the sort of changing aspects of their friendship through that. I mean, because frankly, there's also just the loss of their friendship, right? And what ha- you know, the greatest tragedy of the film is that. Uh, not only is she is she murdered and then possessed by this demon, so she basically loses her friend, but then she has to murder her friend 
and then she's put in an insane asylum uh, to eventually enact revenge, which of course goes back to the rape revenge genre because the revenge does end up being enacted in the end. But uh, yeah, I, th- I thought that it was very, very effective. I think it works. I hadn't really, um, I mean, I like the subplot a lot and I, I do like how it kind of um, evolves from, like you said, the genuine grief to the like very kind of gross commercialization of it. But uh, yeah, I hadn't really put in a whole lot of thought into how it kind of, that kind of works with the main plot. I think your theory, Kyle, is a pretty good one. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, the movie has a lot of those kind of tragedies in it. So it makes sense to kind of, um, to kind of play with that and make fun of it the way that they make fun of, you know, all the kind of horror tropes that, that go along with it too. Yeah. I think one of my favorite lines was when they were like, uh, 3% of the proceeds of this song will benefit, uh, people affected by the tragedy or something like that. So ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then they follow that up with, I think one of the, uh, a surprisingly pertinent to today, uh, bit where, uh, the band is now famous for uh, helping people out of the fire and saving their lives because it's on the internet. It's on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, fake so. news. I was definitely thinking about that, Cal, when they said that. She was like, I, I heard it. I was like, oh, God, this is where we are. <laughs> yeah, we, we learned nothing from Jennifer's body. It, uh, it was there to teach us, and we ignored <laughs> So I guess uh, coming around to the very end of the movie and wrapping around to the beginning, we open the movie with Needy in a psychiatric institute in a looks like a mental hospital. And she is, we later learn, in there for killing Jennifer. And I believe uh, for being framed for killing at least Chip and possibly the, the other two boys as well. And for just generally claiming that Jennifer was a demon probably. Uh, and seeming unwell, but I don't know, how, how does this uh, wraparound work for you? You know, I mean, the my feelings on it have changed quite a bit. You know, I mean, initially I was a little bit put off. I kind of hate flash forward openings, but I thought that it was interesting when um, I was listening to the Faculty of Horror podcast, uh, which for any horror fans out there is a, a phenomenal podcast, and they did a great episode about uh, Jennifer's body as kind of um, uh, debating it as a feminist film. And the interesting thing they pointed out is a lot of classic noir and a lot of classic films open up with a, a character, a male character reminiscing. And the idea there is that everything you see is from that character's point of view. And I think that's the case here as well. This is Needy telling us this story. This is Needy telling us her version of what happened. And I thought it was interesting taking her from that kind of passive character that I think uh, Hannah and Harper, you both brought up that early in the movie, she's very passive. And it's interesting to see that as, as she opens the movie, what we expect from her is that she's a kicker. Uh, She's angry and violent and very, very active in her own life. And so I thought it was an interesting way to, set up this arc that I, I hadn't really noticed at first. Yeah, that's an interesting kind of way to look at it. I hadn't thought about that because, yeah, to me, the the wraparound part is probably my least favorite part of the movie. It's the part of the movie that I always forget about. And even just now, I had I was trying to remember how it actually ends because uh, to me, the movie kind of ends when she kills Jennifer. And I, I always kind of forget about what happens afterwards. So 
Yeah, I don't know. For whatever reason, that 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 bit does not sell itself as well to me. It feels almost like a different movie in some ways. But uh, maybe if it was done a little differently, um, I could see that um, that kind of arc working working a little better. I was okay with that wraparound. I think I kind of liked knowing what was coming for for Needy because I think I might have I don't know dismissed her character a little too soon or been kind of bored by her. But seeing her in that like really violent, unhinged manner in the beginning, and then shifting back to how kind of mild mannered and meek she was, made me interested to see what was going to push her to that point. And you could also pretty clearly tell that her boyfriend or someone she cared about had died. So like knowing that he was in jeopardy also kind of had my interest. Yeah, it was like I, I do think that it worked a little bit better uh, on this viewing. Uh, initially, I think I, I felt similar to you, uh, Harper, and I actually still forgot uh, before I sat down um, recently to rewatch it about the wraparound. But I, I think that it does it does work for me now better than it did initially. I can see what you mean, Hannah, about being uh, a little disinterested in Needy's character because she she really is a little boring at the beginning, um, and for for about the first half of the movie, I think until she uh, loses her virginity and we get that um, shot uh, where she uh, sees Jennifer kind of in a uh, feral crouch on her chair over the corpse of the football player. That's really when she picks up her her own. That's when she starts to push forward in a really strong way. Real quickly, uh, what did you guys think about uh, the weird, not fully explained subplot about Jennifer and Needy's psychic link? Um, can, I, can I just add one thing before y'all answer that question? I will never find Amanda Safri boring ever. <laughs> ever. Ever, ever, ever. Fair enough. Okay, psychic <laughs> link. Somebody go. <laughs> I forgot about the psychic link. When do they t- when do they touch on that? I watched this back in October. <laughs> by the way, <laughs> so uh, at the very beginning of the movie, um, you see uh, Amanda Seyfried in in her room with Chip. Just say Jennifer's here, and then a minute oh, later, yeah. get, um, Jennifer, you know, calling up, and you know, oh, that's creepy. But then later in the film, um, that's how she. Uh, kind of processes that Jennifer has become the succubus, and that's how that's actually how she finds Jennifer and Chip in the pool. Uh, she's at the dance. Uh, Jennifer kisses Chip, and uh, then Amanda Seyfried at the dance, like however far away, touches her lips like she knows what's going on, and then just bolts out the door. Yeah, I so totally forgot about that. It's a vital part of the plot, but. It never really like it just it felt like a weird uh, we had mentioned J.K. Simmons feeling like he had a slightly bigger role that was cut. And I feel like this was the same thing. Like this was this was a something that that needed to be more uh, well needed to be at least brought up a little bit more or lampshaded in some way. And it really wasn't. I, I thought that was weird. Were, were there how did that work with you? And were there any other moments like that that you thought were were cut a little too much and you would have preferred a little bit more explanation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just I just kind of took it as just one of those generic things they do to propel the plot forward. Because um, you're right, they did it in the very beginning. It's like they did it when it was 
convenient for the plot and then they didn't do it when it was convenient for the plot because uh needy also remember she has that moment where someone she thinks is breaking into her house and you have that like typical horror feeling moment and she's looking around and she's opening doors and turning corners uh and then jennifer is there and so when it happened the first time and then that scene happened i was kind of like okay so this is just gonna work when the plot wants it to and then not work at all otherwise um so i don't know it was kind of cheap but it was fine yeah, it just seems like one of those kind of generic, like, best friend things that, yeah, I agree that it's just kind of used when, when it's necessary for the plot. It's funny, though. It must must be done all right because I completely forgot about it and didn't notice it being kind of a weird, you know, thread that never gets followed up on. All right. So we are just about at the hour mark. So we're going to start wrapping up. But before we do, I guess, does anyone have any final thoughts, anything we didn't talk about or cover uh uh, burning questions. I, I wish Amy Sedaris was in the movie more. Uh, I felt like she was like in and out and I don't know. The world needs more Amy Sedaris. Yeah, I agree. She just showed up to tell her about some scary dreams she had. And then she was kind of never around again. Yeah. That, that felt like something very specific. Um, uh, that felt like a moment that could have been much more powerful than it was. And they do call back to that because for, her scary dream is that you'll need me and you'll cry out for me and I won't be there. But I think they waste that moment a little too early in the movie because it, that does come to pass. So maybe that actually plays into the psychic thing as well. But it was a weird moment. And I mean, I, I will never complain about more Amy Sedaris in a movie I watch. Yeah, I mean, she, she literally was never there ever again. So Maybe J.K. Simmons and Amy Sedaris had a romantic subplot that was completely fucking <laughs> <happening> to me. <laughs> I'd watch that movie. Yeah, that would, would be very do. interesting. Yeah, I, the the last thing I would just want to add is, um, so anybody who's who's never seen this movie and has for some reason listened to this whole podcast about it, uh, just listen to what what the uh, the back of the Blu-ray box says and tell me if this even sounds remotely like the movie we've been talking about. It says sexy temptress Megan Fox is hotter than hell as Jennifer, a gorgeous seductive cheerleader who takes evil to a whole new level after she's possessed by a sinister demon. Steamy action and gore galore ensue as the male student body succumbs to Jennifer's insane insatiable appetite for human flesh. Yep. So they don't even mention needy. <laughs> uh, oh, let me see. There's another paragraph. Um, oh, okay. oh now, now it's up to her best friend, Amanda Seyfried, to stop Jennifer's reign of terror before it's too late. <laughs> like, like nothing to do with this movie. Like, like almost could have described a completely different movie. It, it, uh, yeah. This is, this is why I didn't see this movie for years after it came out. Ridiculous. <laughs> It sounds like all the dark, the uh, nocturnal animals trailers we saw on TV that that made, pitched that movie as something completely different yeah, than it if, really was. If you're interested <laughs> in nocturnal animals, just know I think for the better it is not at all what the trailer portrays. Any version of that trailer. Interesting. <laughs> and that's inter- And that that plays into I think the fact that I think a lot of people treat Megan Fox, treat Jennifer as the the main character. You know, looking when I looked back at some reviews from when it came out, uh, when really this is straight up Needy's story and Jennifer Fox is not even the main antagonist, because I would argue that's low shoulder. Uh, right. She's she's kind of the, lo- the 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 friend that Needy loses as she grows up. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's funny that it seems like even the uh, the distribution for the film didn't pick up on the uh, on the the kind of meta parody aspects of the movie. <laughs> they just kind of completely ignore it. Yeah, well, she she's she's the tragic victim, really. <laughs> yeah. All right, so. Uh, everybody, thank you so much for listening uh, to the Geek Rex Movie Club podcast. Um, we are going to be back next, uh, well, I want to say next week, but uh, you know our schedule. We're going to be back <laughs> soon with a discussion of uh, DC's new Young Animal line, which is their new kind of replacement for Vertigo, sort of led by uh, Gerard Way. But uh, bef- uh, sometime shortly after that, hopefully, we will be back with another movie club. And this time the uh, choice is from Harper. So Harper, why don't you take it away and tell us what we'll be watching next? Sure. Um, so I, I had a couple of ideas, but I'm going to go with something a little older than the other ones I was thinking of. Um, just cause I think when we first started talking about this, the, the idea was to watch some classic movies and we've, we've gotten into watching some really awesome uh, modern movies. So I'm going to, I'm going to pull it back um, to a little older and go with one of my all time favorites, which is Terry Gilliam's Brazil. So some cool. um some uh you know dystopian future dark comedy um from from one of the masters uh for our next pick all right i'm excited for that i, I love that movie so i'm looking forward to watching it again cool mm-hmm. i've never seen it am i the only one you're the only one that's awesome i'm so glad <laughs> somebody hasn't <laughs> And, uh, man, uh, maybe we should, uh, bring Harper's sister on as well. <laughs> anyway. I really hope your sister listens to this one, Harper. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be really weird if she does It's going to be really fun if she does it. I'm going to have to mention <laughs> to her that she's a, a main character in our podcast this week. No, don't mention it. That's how you know if she listens to our podcast. <laughs> we should make each podcast about a different person that we all know. This is true. And then we'll know who really listens. <laughs> That's a great I idea. I name dropped my friend Tasha a while back and she texted me the day this came out and was like, so you've been talking about. Me. Oh, that's funny. That's good. So, Tasha, what's up? <laughs> uh, anyways, thank you all for listening. I hope you have a, a wonderful December and we'll be back soon to talk young animal. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.